Welcome everybody, my name is Makal Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 29, The Heretics Part 2, The Other Heretics. There was a word I tried to avoid using in the last Heretics episode about the Baha'i, and I think I did. That word is gulat. That's gu, like G-O-O, and lot, like a parking lot. Gulat. It's usually spelled G-H-U-L-A-T. Now, the G sound isn't actually an English G sound. It's the one unique to Arabic. It's the stepchild of the ein. You know, in Arabic script, it's an ein with a circle filled in or with a dot over it. It sounds more like a G in French, like Charles de Gaulle, or the G in Louis Messonnion. You know, very muted. I'm not a French speaker. I, I'm probably butchering it. So gulat, however you want to say it, comes from the Arabic root meaning to exceed the proper bounds or to be extreme. Also to exaggerate or to charge an absolutely ridiculous price for something. If the early Shia clerics had played sports, this would probably be the word they used for out of bounds. Other synonyms are extremist, radical, fanatic. So I wanted to save the word gulat for this episode. Gulat is kind of like the kufr or non-believer or the more well-known term infidel. But gulat is special because the label, which is a derogatory and dismissive term for extremists of a Shia persuasion, is what separates the true heretics from those with slight doctrinal differences. In the Shia episode, I mostly stuck to the more mainstream Twelver tradition because it's just so dominant in the Shia world. Similarly, if you were to talk about Protestant Christians and it was a broad overview, you would probably talk about Lutherans and Baptists and Presbyterians and so on. But odds are you wouldn't have spent much time on Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. Not that they aren't Protestants, but they are just small in number by comparison and would best be saved for a later date. In Shia parlance, those later groups would not likely be considered gulats. They're still too close to the original doctrines of mainstream Protestant Christianity. So what would be gulat in the Christian sense? I think the Mormons would be a Christian version of gulat. It's not a perfect example. Um, by polling, a slight majority of Christians consider Mormons to be Christians, while a very large majority of Christian clergy do not consider Mormons to be Christians. The reason why should be rather obvious. But I should also qualify that uh, for this audience, because this is a very, very global audience, apparently. And I love you all, by the way. Glad you're here. But that was specifically a poll of American Christians, which makes sense because that's the place with the vast majority of Mormons. So if you're a Christian thinking about Mormonism, it's kind of a window into the concept the Shias are talking about here with the gulat. So just think about the normal Christian thought process when going over Mormonism. Say, oh, okay, there's Jesus. I like him. And wow, these people are friendly. And they definitely bear good fruit. I like these guys. Then, wait, what was that about golden plates? Wait, an Egyptologist said what about those translations? And they do what in that temple? And the book says what about black people? That seems a little out of bounds. You know, if someone is seeing this like a sports fan, you know, that's a no ball. 
That's a technical foul. That's a red card. Or in my country, flag on the play. They have stepped outside the box of the faith they purport to represent. And this is how the Shias have always thought when viewing the Gulat. So before I get to the actual Gulat, I'll just talk briefly about the Shias that are overlooked but are not Gulat. I repeat, these are not Gulat. I'll get to Sunni-related heresies later, by the way. So similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists in Christianity, there are two other major branches of Shiism apart from the Twelvers discussed in the Shia episode. I use the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists to accent the small part of the whole that these groups represent. This is not like Christianity being divided into Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox. For the Shia, the Twelvers are the big kids on the block, and everyone else is a small, single-digit minority. All right, <laughs> enough of that. The other two groups, you're wondering who these are. Those other Shia groups are the Ishmaelis and the Zaydiya. I'll start with the Ishmaelis. All right, so the Ishmaelis. So who is Ishmael, and how did he get his own ism? Ishmael was one of the sons of Jafar, the sixth imam. The Ishmaelis simply follow a different seventh imam and all the ones that come after him. Sometimes they're called seveners, but they didn't stop at seven. The twelvers stopped at twelve, but the seveners didn't stop at seven. The Ishmaelis, at least the largest sect called the Nizaris, actually have a real, live, human imam right now. They are now at 7 times 7, the 49th imam. His name is Aga Khan IV, and he's not what you usually picture when you think of the word imam. He's exceptionally rich, Western-educated, and Western-looking. He's clean-shaven, wears suits. He actually looks like an English businessman. In fact, his mother was English, and he holds British citizenship. He's Harvard-educated and skied in the Olympics, and he lives in France rather than a Muslim nation. But he's not in charge of all the Ishmaelis. There are several subsets of Ishmaelism, including the aforementioned Nizaris and the Mustali, Dawoodi Bora, Hebataz, Bora, Sulamani Bora, and Alayi Bora subdenominations. I'm sure I butchered a few of those, and I apologize to those who are in those sects. But the Nizaris are by far the most famous, and they even had their own state during the 11th and 13th centuries, carved out of what is now parts of Iraq, Iran, and Syria. You may have never heard of these people, who were known for, among many other things, ruthless political warfare and the killing of enemy leaders but you may have heard the word used to describe them back in the day. The people of these, this state in the 11th and 13th centuries were known as assassins. So one other important thing about Ishmaeli imams, it doesn't seem to matter that they are martyred. I don't think the current one has any plans to be martyred. So as you can imagine, the sensibilities and theology of Ishmaelis are a bit different because of this the way the Twelvers were all martyred, but Ishmaelis, not so much. They're not waiting for an infallible imam to reappear at the end of the world. They have one already, just like Catholics have a pope. The main difference is that this is a hereditary pope. But despite all this variance from the mainstream, Ishmaelism is technically a kosher part of Shiism. 
also in the mainstream, the Zadia. The Zadia believe in different successions, starting with the fifth Imam. Their guy was Zaid, grandson of the great Hussein. The Twelvers believe Muhammad al-Bakir was the fifth Imam. So why do the Zaidia, or you could just call them Fivers, think Zaid was so great? He physically fought against the corrupt caliph, while the other guy did not. That's it. Because of this, they began to develop a very different concept of the imamate from conventional Twelver Shiism. So there is no hidden imam in this sect, and imams aren't infallible either, which is the case for Twelvers and Ishmaelis. Or Seveners are also Ishmaelis, those are the same thing. Now that's one way to remember the three sects too, is with the numbers. The level of infallibility and reverence for the imams basically falls with the numbers. From the Twelvers to the Seveners to the Fivers. Now remember, the Twelvers, mainstream Shias, Seveners are Ishmaelis, Fivers are the Zaidiyah. The Fivers also don't believe the imamate has to be passed from father to son either. The imam can be any descendant of Muhammad through Fatima. And by now, you have to think that's a very, very large group. Now, the Zaidiyah have only been influential, for the most part, in a single country, and that country is Yemen. They are currently a huge part of the Houthi movement in Yemen, although as hard as I've looked, I can't find anyone within that movement claiming to be a Zaidiyah imam. Still, the Zaidiyah and the Houthis are often linked. So those are the non-heretics, the non-gulats. Just to repeat, these are mainstream, acceptably orthodox Shias. So I hope that gave you some frame of reference for the acceptable differences within Shia Islam. So now we will move on to the unacceptable differences. Okay, so now on to the actual heretics, the four real Gulat heretics, starting with the Alawites or as they have also been known, Nusayris. You may hear both words, they're the same thing. Uh, for those of you who listen to the episode on Syria, you may have heard some of this before. So the Alawites are a minority sect related to Shia Islam, but almost a fusion between Islam and Christianity. Both Christians and Muslims would consider them wild heretics, although when examining their beliefs, it's important to remember that Alawite is almost as much of an ethnicity as it is a religion at this point. Normally, Alawites are not going to wave a sword in the name of their religion. Uh, they're actually pretty secretive about what they actually believe. So that also makes a the official beliefs of the Alawites pretty much impossible to come by. But to the best of our knowledge, here are some alleged Alawite beliefs. So the Alawites have a trinity, but it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Muhammad, Ali, and Salman the Persian. Salman was a lesser-known companion of Muhammad and Ali. Ali is revered above all, and arguably worshipped by Alawites. Now, alternately, sometimes Ali is only recognized as a manifestation of God, not as part of a trinity. Again, you know, there's, there's a vagueness to a lot of all of this. I'm not an Alawite. I can't tell you for sure. Um, then it gets interesting, even more interesting. The afterlife is more East than West because Alawites believe in heaven or hell in the here and now, 
rather than heaven and hell after death. But it's combined with reincarnation. You know, and in the study of religion, this is a fine example of syncretism, which is the merging of different traditions. Um, there are many holy books as well, the Quran being one among many. The Alawites are known in most historical sources as Nusayris, N-U-S-A-Y-R-I-S. So for the rest of this mini-section, I'll just use that name. That's because historically, the Nusayris have been around for a very long time. So long, in fact, that the Nusayris and similar sects have been traced back to the early Muslim conquest shortly after Muhammad's death, when they came out of the Arabian Peninsula up to Syria and the places where you find Nusayris today. One reason for the formation of these seemingly bizarre beliefs is that the Muslims shot new religious concepts into an already hyper-diverse religious environment in places like Iraq and Syria. A scholar of Shiism named Mujan Momin, himself someone who could be labeled a modern gulat, he's a Baha'i, had this theory. Quote, Much of this had to do with the sudden spread of Islam into new territories, and the difficulty in dealing with sophisticated religious thought that had not yet been developed within the Islamic community. These new people had questions to which Muslims did not have an authoritative answer. This was probably particularly true of Iraq, which was already the seat of intense religious ferment even before the Arab invasion. In Iraq, the ancient Babylonian religious systems, Zoroastrianism, Mazdaqism, Manachaeism, Judaism, various forms of Christianity, all contributed to a kaleidoscope of religious debate and speculation probably unequaled in the ancient world. So mix these religious ingredients, stir, let simmer for a few centuries, and what you end up with are the Nisairis slash Alawites. The term Nusairi is believed to derive from a term meaning little Christians, this had made them the subject of intense criticism from Muslims, both Shia and Sunni. The great Muslim scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, not pulling any punches, he never did, said this all the way back in the 13th century. Quote, The Nusairis are more infidel than Jews or Christians, even more infidel than many polytheists. They have done greater harm to the community of Muhammad than have the warring infidels such as the Franks, the Turks, and others. To ignorant Muslims, they pretend to be Shias, though in reality they do not believe in God or his prophet or his book. Whenever possible, they spill the blood of Muslims. They are always the worst enemies of the Muslims. War and punishment in accordance with Islamic law against them are among the greatest of pious deeds and the most important obligations, Ibn Taymiyyah, end quote. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah is known as a great scholar, which he certainly was, but he's also known as an intellectual grandfather of more modern fundamentalist movements like Salafism or Wahhabism, it's the same thing, most widely known as the main intellectual export of Saudi Arabia. So, if Ibn Taymiyyah said that about the Nusayris, just imagine what some more conservative Arab leaders must think of these people being in charge of a Muslim nation like Syria. On a similar note, I'll move on to the Druze. That's D-R-U-Z-E. The Druze are a distinct traditional religion that began as an offshoot of Ishmaelism. 
you remember, hopefully you remember the Ishmaelis from before, say 10 minutes ago, which is why I talked about them as acceptable Shia Muslims. So the Druze are a sect of a sect. Actually, most Druze do not even bother to call themselves Muslims, although some still do, seeing Druze as an honorable title under the Islamic banner. Muslims are not, they still count as Islamic heretics, much like the Baha'i, because Islam was the religion of origin still. Just for a geographic reference, most Druze are found in the area straddling Israel, Syria, and Lebanon. And like the Alawites slash Nusairis, so much Druze belief is clouded in secrecy and mystery. The belief set seems somewhat similar to the Nusairis, including reincarnation. But while Nusairis think people can be reincarnated as anything, even plants, the Druze believe that they will all be reincarnated within their own particularly within their own particular community. So if you die a Druze, you come back as a Druze. There's also this fascinating tidbit. The Druze believe in five manifestations of God. You can call them prophets, manifestations, whatever. But the twist is this. They repeat themselves. This is the reincarnation element of the Druze. So Moses, Aaron, Jesus, his disciples, Muhammad and his crew, and so on. These all reincarnate. And if you want another twist, add to the manifestations of God, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras, and the like. They seem especially fond of Pythagoras for whatever reason. The Druze are super into the Greek philosophers, which is unsurprising when you look at the time of their founding in the 11th century. At this time in the Middle East, the Greek philosophers were the hottest, best-selling celebrities in the Muslim world. The scholars of the Abbasid Caliphate, with a big assist from local Christians, were furiously translating the great Greek works into Arabic. This was a sort of Arab enlightenment, when the Arab world was gung-ho about philosophy and logic and all the academic disciplines that came out of it. For the educated elite, this was like the Beatles hitting the shores of the United States. Aristotle was a huge deal, and for the Druze, he made their semi-pantheon. Just to reiterate, like with the Alawites, this stuff is supposed to be a secret to people like us. This is not a proselytizing religion, and there's a very good reason for that. The Druze had a very short period of toleration, followed by nearly a millennia of violent repression. Best to keep the beliefs in-house, they thought. In-network, don't advertise them. Fundamentalist Muslims are not too keen on the Druze, and they never have been. I should stress that the Druze are monotheist, technically, but that has never offered them much protection. So, speaking of Muslim fundamentalists, let's see what our old pal Ibn Taymiyyah has to say about the Druze. Quote, That they are unbelievers is something that all Muslims agree upon. In fact, anyone who doubts that they are unbelievers is an unbeliever like them. They are not in the status of people of the scripture, nor the idolaters, for they are stray unbelievers and their food is not halal. Their women are to be enslaved and their fortunes are to be taken away. They are apostate heretics and their repentance is not accepted. They are to be killed wherever they are found, cursed as they are described, and they are not to be employed in guarding or keeping doors or keeping peace. 
and their scholars and saints must be killed so that they do not lead others astray. It is haram to sleep with them in their homes and their companionship and walking with them and walking in their funerals if you knew about their deaths. And it is haram for the rulers of Muslims to do away with the punishments that Allah has decreed upon them. It is only Allah's help that is sought, and on him do we depend. End quote. He's such a pleasant guy, isn't he? Ibn Taymiyyah, he's just radiating warmth and kindness. And I'm sure there are plenty of modern clerics who actually do share this view. The Druze are most often identified with the country of Lebanon, where they make up around 5% of the population. And Syria, also, where they tend to make common cause with their fellow heretics and the Assad regime. They're well-placed geographically in that respect. In the southwest and mostly away from the area ISIS swept through during the war a few years back. But they're not always so lucky. Persecution, similar to, but to a much more extreme degree than mainstream Shia Islam, is most definitely in the Druze DNA. Okay, so you've heard plenty of Shia heretics. So what about the Sunnis? Who are the Sunni heretics? Who are there at Gulat? Although you won't really hear that word with Sunnis. You know, there are many political or ideological movements that don't get along. You know, things like the Muslim Brotherhood or on the other end of the spectrum, the Gulen movement out of Turkey. But actual religious heresies are pretty rare on the Sunni side. In terms of direct violation of Muslim orthodoxy and a large enough group of followers to cause a ruckus, only two really stand out, the Ahmadiyya and the Nation of Islam. One has its roots in South Asia, and the other is probably the only Islamic movement of consequence, at least that I can think of, that was born in the United States of America. So I'll start with the Ahmadiyya. Now, the Ahmadiyya, as you might have guessed, this has something to do with a guy named Ahmed, in this case, Marza Gulen Ahmed. The story starts in the city of Qadian, probably not pronouncing that right, Q-A-D-I-A-N, now a city in the extreme north of India, near the Pakistani border. Of course, back when the faith was founded in 1889, there was no such thing as Pakistan. It was a Muslim community in British India, in the state of Punjab. Now, Punjab is a very distinct place with its own language, and Greater Punjab really straddles both India and Pakistan. So it might be better to think of this as a Punjabi story than a Pakistani story or an Indian story. Punjab is actually a pretty interesting place religiously. The Pakistani part is Sunni Muslim, and the Indian side is majority Sikh, with a big Hindu population as well. While much of Punjab is religiously segregated now, I believe that was not the case when the Ahmadiyya came to be. I'm not an expert on the Ahmadiyya movement, but it would be interesting to see what role this religious diversity had on the movement and the actions of the founder. Anyway, Mirza Gulen Ahmad did not have a message just for Punjab and the Punjabis. It was a message for the entire world, and really for all religions, at least many of them. Ahmad claimed to be the Mahdi, an apocalyptic figure in Islam, but he also claimed to be the Christian Messiah. He also claimed to be an incarnation of Krishna, and he also claimed to be the reappearance of Muhammad. Now there's a bit to unpack there, 
And you'd be right to be a bit skeptical of these claims just based on theological coherence. You know, there are some wild claims spanning three religions there. I don't know what it takes to be an incarnation of Krishna, or whether that's a common thing in modern times, but I imagine there were, and are, plenty of Hindus who would take issue with that claim. But the claims, these claims, to Christian and Muslims' ears are most definitely strange. For Muslims, the obvious question is, how could you be the Mahdi and the return of Muhammad? First of all, they're two different people. Second of all, Muhammad never said anything about coming back. And third of all, Muslim orthodoxy is pretty explicit that no prophet will come after Muhammad. You can hear echoes of Baha'i claims, which predate the Ahmadiyya by 30-something years. Similarly, these issues have been addressed. The Ahmadiyya believe that the seal of the prophets does not mean there will be no prophets after Muhammad, only that all future prophets cannot supersede the law given by Muhammad which is considered to be perfect. And a distinction is also made between law-giving prophets and non-law-giving prophets. Law-giving prophets are people like Moses and Jesus and Muhammad, and Muhammad would be the last of those. But Ahmad believed he was a non-law-giving prophet, a renewer and sustainer of God's law. Also, going back to the claims to be Muhammad, we see a common thing in Muslim heresies here. They almost always include an element of reincarnation. This is what happens when West meets East, and the Eastern view of time, which is often cyclical, seeps into an Abrahamic Western religion. The Ahmadiyya believe time is cyclical, thus the belief in reincarnation. And for Christians, what's this business about being the Christian Messiah? Any Sunday school student knows that Jesus was the Messiah. How can someone believe in Jesus and take his place as the Messiah? For one, it helps to think in mystical notions of cyclical time. That's usually the metaphor that explains things like these. And that's half true here. Ahmad claimed to be not only the Messiah, but the second coming of Jesus, as well as the Islamic apocalyptic figure of the Mahdi. Oh, and the promised Messiah is this person as well. Ahmad was the biblical Messiah, the second coming of Jesus, and the Mahdi. This does seem to be a common theme with this sect. Entities and people that were always thought of as separate are thrown together in just plain fascinating ways. And what of Jesus? Well, we know the Islamic Jesus was not really crucified. The Ahmadiyya take this an extra step further. In their version, Jesus faked his death, escaped to India, and lived another 90 years or so. In this way, they're just following the Islamic sensibility of prophets. God does not allow evil people to torture and kill his messengers. The Ahmadiyya, to American ears, may sound basically like Sunni Mormons. There's a 19th century founding. They seem to have a whole lot of money and they have a heck of a lot of missionary zeal. I first ran into this at the seminary. Uh, I was studying in the library, so I grabbed the big reference Korans. But after a while, I began to notice the numbers on this Koran did not match my course material. You know why? Apparently, when I looked closer at the title page, the Koran was a gift to the seminary from the Ahmadiyya. And if I remember right, every surah was one off, because unlike standard Korans, they counted the 
Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim, that is the beginning of every surah, as a separate ayat in each surah. Now, usually this preamble is not included in the counting, um, but for the Ahmadiyya, for reasons I actually still don't understand, it is. So you can see these people leave no missionary stone unturned, much like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the official name of the Mormons. And just as the Mormons are at an in-between twilight zone when it comes to Christianity, you could say the same thing about the Ahmadiyya. Are the Ahmadiyya Muslims? The Saudis don't think so. Ahmadiyya are not welcome to make the Hajj pilgrimage in Mecca. Uh, I would assume most Imams would not consider them Muslims. Their spiritual home, which is in Pakistan, is quite adamant that they are not Muslims. Um, this is from Amnesty International. Quote, the Pakistani penal code explicitly targets Ahmadis by prohibiting them from indirectly or directly posing as a Muslim. Ahmadis are banned from declaring or propagating their faith publicly, building mosques, or making the Muslim call for prayer, end quote. Now, that sounds quite harsh to Western ears, particularly American ones. That law would require a constitutional amendment in my country because it would violate the First Amendment and about a billion Supreme Court precedents regarding freedom of religion and freedom of speech and all these things. But I think the Pakistani officials would retort with something similar to a commercial trademark lawsuit in the United States. Now, for instance, let's say Apple, the computer company, brought a lawsuit against other companies using the name Apple in their products. If that company sold apples or any other kind of fruit, Apple computers likely wouldn't have much of a case. But if a company called itself Apple and they sell computer repair services or hard drives or anything related to computers and technology, then the lawsuit would probably have some merit. And why would it have merit? Brand confusion. Apple could make the case that a reasonable person would be led to believe that the other Apple was associated with the big billion dollar Apple company. The Pakistani government similarly would say that the Ahmadiyya are promoting brand confusion. The Ahmadiyya aren't selling Islam branded fruit, they're selling Islam branded religion, of course. Islam is a brand that they own, or at least that the Pakistani government feels that they own and the Ahmadiyya are not allowed to use it without permission. In a poll, 66% of Pakistanis said Ahmadiyya are not Muslims, and only 7% said they were. So it's not exactly a minority opinion in Pakistan that the Ahmadiyya are not Muslims. But then again, that's just Pakistan. The Ahmadiyya are everywhere, and while I have no hard proof of this, I would speculate that the attitude is different in many places. Certainly where I live, just as someone in Saudi Arabia probably can't tell the difference between a standard Christian and a Mormon, in the United States almost no one knows the difference between an Orthodox Muslim and an Ahmadiyya, and I doubt they care. Uh, the same may be true in many countries where the Ahmadiyya have some eye-popping numbers. Now, Tanzania, for example, which is in Eastern Africa, if you don't know where that is, keep in mind this is a majority Christian country with about 60 million people. Yet somehow, this is according to Pew Research, Tanzania has 2.5 million Ahmadiyya. That's more than 10% of the country's Muslim population. 
I bet attitudes are different there. Of course, I could be wrong. I've never been to Tanzania, and I don't know anything about those Ahmadiyya, but those are just eye-popping numbers. One final note on this tradition. There actually is an Ahmadiyya caliphate. They view these rulers as a restoration of the rightly guided caliphs, and they're already up to number five. They're non-political caliphates, so you may think of them similar to the Shia imams. Only with a Sunni twist, these people are actually elected, and they all have the same name. The current caliph is Caliphatul Maseh, the fifth. So finally, we get to the Nation of Islam. Nation of Islam. I included this one mainly because its origins and beliefs are just way out there. And I thought I would end with it because it's uniquely modern, and it's a heresy that could have only happened in the United States of America. In many ways, it's the inverse of Mormonism it's in, in its original form, shaped in an age of racism, in an isolated community, and telling a story unique to a small subset of Americans. The Mormons were white and founded in relation to Christianity. The Nation of Islam was black and formed in opposition to Christianity. Now, just a small disclaimer here, the current Mormon church has denounced racism and has black members, just to get that out of the way. But as far as I've seen, racism is still one of the core beliefs of the Nation of Islam. Now, many people object to the Nation of Islam for one simple reason, and that's racism. That's what bothers people, and it's not just in our time. Martin Luther King, the closest thing my country has to a secular saint, said this of the Nation of Islam, quote, called them, a hate group arising in our midst that would preach the doctrine of black supremacy, end quote. Now that racism seems to be the sticking point with most people, not the origin story that ignores previous scripture in the Quran, not the elements made up from whole cloth, not the creation of the evil wizard, not the UFOs. Actually, I think few people even know about that. And fewer probably know that Malcolm X, the most famous member of the Nation of Islam, renounced it in his later days in favor of Orthodox Islam. It actually took a pilgrimage to Mecca to make him into a traditional Muslim. Now, the Nation of Islam has beliefs that are just all over the place, depending on time, place, and leader. But here's a sample. This is from an American nonprofit that tracks what they call hate groups. Quote, founded Wallace D. Fard, according to the FBI, other aliases include Farad Muhammad, Wallace Dodd, Wallace Ford, Wally D. Ford, Wally Ford, and Wallace Farad. So founder Wallace D. Ford, Fard and his messenger and successor, Elijah Muhammad, preached a hybrid creed with its own myths and doctrines. These held that over 6,000 years ago, the black race lived in a paradise on earth that was destroyed by the evil wizard, Yakub, who created the white devil through a scientific process called grafting. Fard and his disciples preached of a coming apocalyptic overthrow of white domination, insisting that the dominion of evil was to end with God's appearance on earth in the person of Fard. Following this, the Nation of Islam predicts an epic struggle in which the Nation of Islam will play a key role in preparing and educating the original people who ruled the earth in peace and prosperity until Yakub's 
blue-eyed devils came along to gum things up. The Nation of Islam teaches that intermarriage or race mixing should be prohibited. End quote. So the group got its big break during the American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, with big names like Muhammad Ali joining the roles. Malcolm X was an exceedingly charismatic preacher and an all-around brilliant guy, was the biggest draw at this time. But he split from Elijah Muhammad, embraced Orthodox Islam, and was promptly assassinated. The group is now led by a guy named Louis Farrakhan, who has been criticized for racism and anti-Semitism, among other things. This is mainly what the group is known for today, but few understand just how wildly this group veers from Orthodox Islam. So here are the largest heresies. Number one, racism. The Nation of Islam is basically a black nationalist group with Islamic characteristics. Current leader Louis Farrakhan insists the Nation of Islam is not a racist organization, but I suppose racism is in the eyes of the beholder here. They see it as responding to hate with hate, but that's still hate. And racial separatism, to most people, is racist. And even if the Nation of Islam, from a certain point of view, is a kind of racial self-defense militia, it's not exactly the high ideals most people are looking for in a religion. And as far as I've seen, and unlike the Mormons, I've seen no explicit denunciation of the group's racist path. Just an Islamic reminder from Muhammad himself. This is from the Hadith, Muhammad's uh, farewell sermon. O people, your Lord is one and your father Adam is one. There is no favor of an Arab over a foreigner, nor a foreigner over an Arab, and neither white skin over black skin, nor black skin over white skin, except by righteousness. Big heresy number two, the divinity of the founder and the status of Elijah Muhammad as a prophet. As detailed in earlier heresies, if Fard was the Messiah and Elijah Muhammad was great enough to break the seal of the prophets, surely you have a good explanation for that, right? I mean, oddly, unlike all the previous heresies, I've never seen an intellectual attempt to reconcile this. More on that in a bit. Elijah Muhammad pretty much ignored Muhammad's role in the religion he was adopting. So really, I suppose he could just do anything he wanted. And large heresy number three, doctrines with no Islamic sources, or even Jewish or Christian sources. There are plenty of these, including one tidbit regarding UFOs. Apparently, Elijah Muhammad once said that UFOs are really called mother planes, and there are 1,500 UFOs orbiting the planet that may one day destroy the Earth. And that cloud Ezekiel saw in the sky in the Bible? That was a UFO built in Japan. You see how this might be dismaying to Muslims, to put so much effort into faithfully sourcing not only the Quran, but the sayings of Muhammad, and then to have the Nation of Islam just make up whatever they want to make up. you know. But the Nation of Islam actually doesn't see it that way. Because if Elijah Muhammad is a prophet, then he can say whatever he wants, and that's the truth. To be fair, parts of the Nation of Islam are aware of this. Actually, Elijah Muhammad's son, W.D. Muhammad, denounced the divinity of the founder as well as the sect's black supremacist doctrine, moving the group toward mainstream Islam. But many did not like this, and that caused a split. So who went in the other direction? 
a guy named Louis Farrakhan, who is generally considered the leader of the Nation of Islam as the world knows it. You could say Dean Muhammad was in the Malcolm X model, ironically, considering it was his father who probably had Malcolm killed. And Malcolm was the greatest hope for intellectual coherence, and they just completely blew it. By the way, for those outside of America who have never heard of the Nation of Islam, I highly recommend the movie Malcolm X with Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. It's a spectacular film, really, which explains the rise, the appeal, and all the many downsides of the Nation of Islam. Okay, back to intellectual coherence. Most sects and offshoots, and really religions in general, have a vigorous tradition of apologetics. In, in theological jargon, apologetics is basically a rhetorical and intellectual defense of the faith. Christians in general are very, very good at this. Uh, C.S. Lewis would be one of many, many examples. But I don't see this in the Nation of Islam. Perhaps I just haven't found it, but I've never seen a full-throated and coherent defense of the Nation of Islam. I've seen it for the Baha'i, I've seen it for the Ahmadiyya, and I've seen it for other groups who strayed from Muslim orthodoxy. Um, you know, we've certainly seen this in Christianity, from Augustine to Luther to the modern theologians, but from the Nation of Islam, all I've seen are not really defenses of the doctrine, but rather excuses for it based on the members' perceived victim status in the United States. And this lack of intellectual base does not help its perception. And in the last decade, it has even partnered with Scientology. That's not really a good look for a religion looking to be taken seriously. And at this point, even the Ahmadiyya don't consider the Nation of Islam's adherents to be Muslims. Okay, so that's the last of the heretics. That's the end. Um, one thing to keep in mind, this is not a complete list of Islamic heretics. You know, like with any religion, there are plenty of offshoots of offshoots of heresies and semi-heresies. I can't include them all. For those who know the area of Syria and Iraq, you may have felt I left off the Yazidis, a group that came to prominence recently as a victim of an ISIS genocide campaign. But I left them out because while it has some practices that appear Islamic, the Yazidi religion actually predates Islam and was shaped by it, not formed from it. It's an ancient religion with some Islamic characteristics. I also thought about including Sikhism, but I decided it's more of a new religion with some Islamic ideas, rather than something that could plausibly be considered to have grown out of Islam. You know, and Sikhism, which is a fascinating religion, by the way, um, the founder was a Hindu, and he was blurring the lines between Hinduism and Islam, and East and West. And for the record, fair or not, Sikhism is often considered an Eastern religion, on par with Hinduism or Buddhism. And you may have noticed I was more sympathetic to some than others. And honestly, most of that is just personal bias. I have a soft spot for the Baha'i, and I'm just as sympathetic to the lesser-known religions of the Middle East and the Shia offshoots. Honestly, I just find them to be intensely interesting. And the older, the better. That may be why I'm so unsympathetic to the Nation of Islam. It is pretty new, although I have many other reasons for being critical of that sect. Now, full disclosure here, my seminary was located just a few blocks from Louis Farrakhan's house. There was always a guy in a black car parked outside. It made for a weird, highly secured neighborhood. 
Barack Obama's house was a block or two to the south as well. Uh, many of my fellow seminarians went to hear him speak and appeared sympathetic to him. And this just blew my mind then, and it still blows my mind today. Granted, they didn't know what I knew about the Islam part of Nation of Islam. You know, that the Islamic part of it was largely ornamental. And perhaps they were worried about being perceived as racists if they weren't sympathetic to Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. But really, Louis Farrakhan has little to offer, spiritually or intellectually. You know, who takes spiritual guidance from a man who is full of hate? And how could a man so mind-bogglingly ignorant be the leader of anyone? Farrakhan has all the credibility of a YouTube comment section combined with the inner bile of a 4chan thread. If he's a prophet, so was L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, and naked racism tends to make me very angry, and for very personal reasons. So yeah, I have an extreme bias and every reason to have a negative attitude toward these guys. So don't take my word for it on the Nation of Islam. I'm not an impartial judge. Not even close. But at least I didn't call it a cult. Okay, I'll stop there. I'm getting worked up. Back to positive things. So many of these heresies found a way to take a few things that don't usually go together and fuse them together in an interesting way. These offshoots mainly come from the Middle East, but for me, there's something familiar about them. This desire to mix things together. In my country, this would just be called the American spirit. We're the land of fusion restaurants, where Korean tacos are a thing, where everyone is Irish on March 17th and Mexican on May 5th, where beer comes from bananas if you wanted to. This is the melting pot, and it's the same concept that inspired so many of the traditions that we have covered. They are the most notable offshoots of Islam, but they certainly will not be the last. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.